Hi guys, I'm sharing with uh, Fruits of the Spirit Ministry. This is kind of a project that I've had in mind for a while, and I guess it's just kind of time to get it started. So I want to begin with this first segment and kind of want to fill y'all in. I want to take you through um, from ministry to addiction to abuse to being at death's door back to ministry. I want to take you through all that. Um, at the age of 13, I was called in to be a missionary by God. And I toyed with that for a couple of years. Of course, turned 16, got interested in guys. I was married at uh, 18. Um, didn't have children for a while, though, about eight years. So kind of walked that walk out a little while. Got into the party routine. The gent, the guy that I married was a self-proclaimed atheist. <laughs> that was not a good situation. I'm here to tell you that. But anyway, we'll move right on through that. <laughs> um, I lived that party life for a long time. I started running when God called me into be a missionary. Suppose it scared me, and I just started running. Moses and I both have something in common. I ran for forty something years. Moses was lost in the wilderness for 40-something years, so we just ran. Um, I went down the routine of the party life. I became addicted to opiates. Um, worked very hard, held down good jobs, um, in great income, so that I could support my opiate lifestyle. And later, as I hooked up with the wrong men, and I was drawn into people that I always thought I could help. That was my thing. I can fix them. Well, there's some people you just can't fix. <laughs> Found this out the hard way. And to begin that little journey with you, and I, I'm trying to keep this as short and kind of compact as I possibly can while filling y'all in and letting you just kind of see how fruits actually got started. So I met this guy. Fell in love with him, but the person I fell in love with was a person that was only a figment of his imagination, as he was a narcissist, no empathy whatsoever, not capable of loving anybody, but could convince you that he worshipped the ground that you walked on. So convincing, such a smooth talker. Life was, you know, it was okay for a little bit. More party time there. Um, I had a great doctor. Had the, the best of the opiates. He loved that, let me tell you. Um, so as I would go to my doctor, would do the party thing, just having a good time. About two years into this relationship, I ended up with nine broken ribs. So I left. I stayed gone overnight. Um, he thoroughly convinced me that he doesn't know what happened, that uh, he just kind of flipped out, um, went into a blackout, and, and was just so sorry. Typical abusive relationship. That began with isolation, lost my children in the process, and they were grown. But they just quit having anything to do with me because of the lifestyle that I was leading. So, just just typical abusive situation. I healed. 
I bought this, the stories hook, line, and sinker because I was totally head over heels in love with him. However, again, let me, let me say this. The person I was in love with actually did not exist. It was merely a pigment of his imagination. Mine too, I suppose. Well, things got better for about another year. Rocked on. Silicaga, Alabama. Visited my sister down there. Uh, just kind of a change of pace. Decided to move down there for a little bit. Rented a place. Um, he wanted to get out one night. We went to a motel. Out to a nice place to eat. Was just going to kind of enjoy each other's company without any interruptions. Um, during the restaurant, he, he started getting a little, um, I don't sideways, a little bit violent, like was just slamming dishes and stuff. And, and I really got embarrassed, so I just left and went back to the room and said, I'll see you there. Went back to the room, and um, here he come walking in a, a little bit later. And when he walked in that room, he beat the living crap out of me. Let me tell you what. My face was swollen. I had two black eyes. I had two broken eye sockets. I had knots all over my head on the back. They loved to hit you in the back of the head because uh, uh, it doesn't show as much. But both of my eyes were totally black and swollen, and I couldn't even open them. And um, my jaw was broken. I had nine broken ribs. I mean, my nose was broken. <laughs> I looked pretty rough. Well, lo and behold, um, I, I was soaking in the bathtub the next morning, trying, you know, not really knowing what to do because when you're in this situation, you can't think clearly. You can't think clearly of how to get out of it if you're going to live or not and what you need to do. Your mind is so boggled and confused. You just can't straighten it out. You're not thinking. You're not thinking at all. That's why someone in a domestic violence situation needs a helping hand. Somebody to reach out and take their hand and say, let me show you a way. Because you can't see that way can't see it at all when you're sucked in into this situation. You feel hopeless. You feel trapped. You feel like there's no way out. Here to tell you there is a way out. You just got to be shown that way. So um, I left this time for a year. Um, moved back to my hometown of Jasper. Um, stayed up there with a friend of mine for about a year. Everything rocking along real good, you know. Um, and lo and behold, one day, who knocks at the door? <laughs> oh, yeah, there he is standing there. Full of apologies and been hunting for me for a year and so sorry all this happened and doesn't know what came over on him. And I said, no, 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 no. And I called and called and called and called and to finally convince me to give it one more shot. And this was the last shot. Um, apparently this was going to be the last one, <laughs> uh, one way or another, could be death. Um, at the time, I, I really bought that he had changed, that he was so sorry that all this was, was, uh, just a big mistake. And, and again, I loved him, but again, I loved a person that didn't really exist. So, um, he picked me up. I went to his house, uh. Once I get there, things start going a little bit awry. He's telling me that um, I can't be outside the house because I'm not supposed to be there. But that he's going to move and, and that I'll only have to put up with this for a little while. 
Well, the door stayed locked. I can't get out the door. Can never open the door. Can't go to the porch. Cannot leave the house. Six weeks, I was not allowed outside the store. One Sunday, um, he told me, well, let me back up a little bit. Um, came through one night with a very big club that he had made that uh, he was Irish and it had this kind of um, um, screws and stuff on the end of it and uh, it terrified me. So he ended up throwing it away after I just became hysterical and uh, tried to bolt out the door. He did throw it away, snap back into reality zone. This man was so possessed with demons that, that a demon would take over and all of a sudden he would become someone else. And during that moment of someone else is when he could kill you. Um, and specifically me. That demon hated me. So, the stick, he finally got rid of that. And that was a traumatization of mine for a long, long time. Um, after that, one Sunday, he told me he was cooking our last dinner. He was going to kill me. He was going to kill the dog. He was going to kill himself. Forced me into the bedroom at knife point. Now, this is a one-bedroom female unit, and it's a very nice one. It's a very big one, but uh, for a female unit, it is anyway. But it's a one-bedroom, so there's nowhere to run to, nowhere to hide, no way to get out this doorway, and he's stabbing at me and the dog with the knife. God saved me that day. The neighbor came and knocked on the door, and when she did, I bolted out the door ran screaming to the neighbors, terrified, hysterical, begging them, please don't see me back, please don't see me back, call somebody, call the police, help me, help me. Of course, nobody wanted to call the police. People don't like you to get involved. Um, he convinced them that everything was okay, that he just kind of blacked out, don't know what came over him, that everything was fine, it wouldn't happen again. Um, and they bought a hook, line, and sinker, and he hauled me back to the house. This was about the middle of July. No, excuse me, the middle of August. September the 3rd, he was on disability. September the 3rd, he uh, received his monthly disability check. He had wrecked his truck, so his dad came after him and took him to town, and he bought groceries and whatever and paid bills that need to be done. Went to the drugstore, all that stuff that you do every month. Um, brought me back some uh, some presents, a, a, a pretty shirt, some fingernail polish, makeup, just different stuff that he would bring me when he was in this type of mood. Um, this day when he got back, I don't know, one, two o'clock, the last thing I remember was painting my nails. That's the last thing I remember to this day. The next thing I remember is the police pounding on the door. How I remember this, I don't know, because I was unconscious. Subconsciously, I remember it. Somehow, because he would not open the door, I managed the strength to reach up and open that door, and the police came in. In all my confusion, in all my hurt, in everything that's wrong with me, I suffered a traumatic brain injury. Um, I had a broken eye socket. My nose was broken. Um, I had um, neck injuries, spinal injuries. 
Um, I had uh, lacerations and cuts, um, abrasions all the way down the right side, so just, just skin draw where I had been drugged. Um, just my face was a mess. I couldn't open my eyes again. I had blood all over me in my eyes, out my nose. My nose was badly broken this time. Um, bruises and, uh, I had black eyes for two months. <laughs> That's how bad they were. They were. Um, I looked like a monster, a swollen face. The hospital even covered, uh, the mirrors in the room. They didn't want me seeing what I looked like. I woke up, um, I remember the ambulance ride and I remember hearing, wow, siren's been on a long time. Uh, again, subconsciously, I'm thinking this. Um, I remember being wheeled down um, the hallway at UAB. I remember hearing somebody say, um, you're in the trauma unit of UAB Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, that's all I remember. I remember waking up, I guess it was the next day, I'm really not sure. And I know I was in ICU in the trauma unit because there was a nurse beside my bed. And I said, hey, I'm so thirsty. And she said, you can't have anything to drink. You're scheduled for emergency surgery. I said, what kind of emergency surgery? And she said, brain surgery. And I remember I, I went back out. The same thing happened the next day, and it was a repeat. They had scheduled me for emergency brain surgery for 48 hours um, in case my brain started swelling. Uh, God intervened that day. I was bleeding. My brain was bleeding. I had a subdural hematoma, um, but God intervened. He let that blood trickle so slowly that my head never swelled, even though every doctor I had, because the bleed was a major bleed. Um, it was bleeding badly. And, and they just, that's why they scheduled me for 48 hours emergency surgery because they were sure that's what was going to happen to happen and they were going to have to release pressure on my brain. But God let it trickle all the way down so slowly that my brain never swelled out. And this is when God first started intervening in miracles. He still had work for me to do. I just didn't know it at the time. When I became fully awake, um, uh, the next day, I think I was unconscious for four days total. Um, the longer you're unconscious with a traumatic brain injury, the more damage is done. And I, I do have lasting damages, but uh, praise God, it's something I, live, I can live with every day. It's no big deal. Um, the nurse told me, she said, uh, do you remember going to your local hospital? I said, nope. She said, we took you, you were taken there by ambulance first. And they x-rayed every bone in your body, found a broken shoulder too, transferred you to uh, Princeton in Birmingham, Alabama, because they couldn't take care of you there. She said, Princeton x-rayed you from head to toe. You went through a full emergency room. They elected that your injury was too significant for them, and they called the trauma unit in at like 2 o'clock in the morning, and you had three ambulance rides three hospitals, and the third one, we x-rayed you from your feet to the top of your head. And uh, we actually found all of your injuries that you had, and we admitted you, of course. 
and I, I'm like, wow, I don't remember being in the first emergency room. I don't remember the first doctor. I literally remember nothing. And she said, well, I'm not surprised. I looked at, I glanced over, and there's a bag there with stuff in it. And she said, that's your clothes you had on. We cut them off of you. And she said, you had that cell phone. I picked up the cell phone. The cell phone belonged to my boyfriend. And I'm like, how did I have his cell phone? And, and I'm racking my brain. Like, that's impossible. He would never give me a cell phone because he'd be afraid I'd call the police. Evidently, he was trying to kill me. So the nurse looked at it, and she said, uh, the police said they received two phone calls. She said one of them was from the neighbor. One of them was from you. And I'm like, really? How did I possibly call the police? I'm unconscious this whole time. Well, I'll tell you how. God sent in angels to make that phone call for me. That is the only answer. Still got the cell phone to this day. It's a miracle phone. It's one that God placed in my hand and sent in angels to make that phone call. I know this beyond one shadow of a doubt because I know it was physically impossible for me to make that phone call. Well, this is the week. Because I'm going to do some changing here. So, I kind of, as I become a little more fully awake, um, I've been clean for a year, all the drugs for a year, clean a whole year, so proud of myself. I looked over at the board, and lo and behold, I see morphine, Norco, Oxycontin. I'm like, oh my God, no, I don't want to do this again. So I started praying, God, please help me. And I cried out from the depths of my heart, God, take this addiction from me. I don't need it. I don't want it. Please take it, God. And I'm in it. And when you cry out from the depths of your heart and you truly and truly mean it, God will take it from you. He'll take it from you. You've got to believe that he's going to take it from you, but he's going to take it from you. I talked to God all week long. I rededicated my life. I told God, I said, God, my decisions are terrible. Look where they blended me. I said, from now on, I will ask you to direct my very footsteps every single day, every single decision. I will ask you for direction, God. I will no longer make my own decisions because I'm not capable of making them, apparently. And you are. So, but God and I, we had a talk that week. All week long, I talked to God. And I felt nothing but total peace. I was not worried about where I was going to live. Of course, right now I'm homeless. I have no home. You know, we can't go back to where I came from unless I want to die. That would be certain death. Um, he tried to kill me. I had three life-threatening injuries. But by the grace of God, my, I still had work to do. God wanted to see to it that I still had work to do. But God and I, we talked all week long. Total peace. Not a worry in the world. Just laid there and rested and tried to get better. I was in the trauma unit nine days, and they decided that they were going to release me. And I had, I don't know, about 13 neurologists and neurosurgeons and respiratory therapists and uh, orthopedics for my broken shoulder. Uh, it was hurting. My head was hurting so bad I didn't even realize my shoulder was broken. It was um, 
after my head finally quit, stopped hurting in about three months is when my shoulders started bothering me. <laughs> so your, your brain just kind of zeroes in on what is the worst at the time. So I, I didn't even realize my shoulder or my nose was, was broken as badly as it was or my eye sockets. Uh, other than my vision is totally terrible <laughs> because of all the broken eye sockets I've had. But um, one of my doctors, and I'll never forget him, he sat on the, on the edge of my bed and he said, Look, Sharon, he said, I can't send you back. If I let you go back home, I'm not doing my job. You will die if you go back to where you came from. You were at death's door this time. I cannot allow that to happen. He said, if I help you line a, a safe place for you to go, get your life back in order and get counseling, will you do it? And I looked him straight in the eye and I said, yes, I will. I will. So they sent my social worker in. And they wanted me to go to the YMCA, a very nice place there in Birmingham, so I'd be real close to the hospital because I, they knew I was going to need for about a year, I was in and out of UAB constantly seeing uh, doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor and neurologist. And they knew it was going to be like this, so they wanted me right there. Well, the why wouldn't take me? They said it was outside their service area, which I didn't understand, because right now I'm in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'm homeless. Uh, but they wouldn't take me. Uh, a lot of places wouldn't take me. My social worker and I sat there, and we called, and we called, and we called, and we called. And finally, she said, call this number, Sharon. I've already talked to him. So I picked up the phone, and I called, and it was Shelby County Safe House in Columbiana, Alabama. And they said, yeah, we'll take you. Come on in. I said, well, they're going to release me from the hospital, and uh, they're going to bring me. Where do I come to? UAB has their own taxi service, by the way. And uh, she said, they're going to take you to the sheriff's department in Columbiana, Alabama, and you're going to walk in and tell the sheriff that you are to be brought over here to the safe house. And here's a phone number you give them. And here's a name you give them. I said, okay. So I started getting my stuff together. The hospital went and built some medications for me and handed them to me because, you know, uh, and, and I'm looking at them. I'm like, uh, guys, I don't have any clothes, nothing. What am I going to do? So they went and bought me a scrub suit and uh, some uh, little house, some slippers. And um, they dismissed me and uh, wheeled me down to their taxi driver. Now, at this time, I'm nervous of all men. I'm terrified. And, but they assured me that everything was going to be fine, that this was a good guy, and that I was not going to have to worry about anything, and he would take care of everything for me. And he did. He was very, very nice. But I felt so bad. I was so weak. And I just kind of laid my head up against the uh, the back of the seat and, and rode about an hour to Shelby County. Got there. And he pulled in. And he waited until he watched me walk in, get with the sheriff, he did not leave till he made sure I was coordinated with the sheriff's deputy there. I gave them the information. The sheriff's deputy called, and they said, okay, just sit right here just a minute. And in just a little bit, they said, come with me. And I got up and followed them, and they put me in their police car, and they took me to 
the safe house that Shelby County, Alabama. We pulled up front, and I started to get out. And he said, wait just a minute. I'm going to escort you in. He came around and opened my car door for me, walked me in, hand-delivered me to my caseworker. They did my admitting paperwork, and I was so tired. The only thing I wanted was to go to bed. So tired. They did my admitting paperwork, and they did a rush on it. 30 minutes, they knew that I was in no shape to be sitting there. And then they took me up to my bed, and I crawled in bed, and I didn't move for the rest of the night and the next day. They came through, and they said, do you want anything to eat? And I said, no, I don't. Now, at this time, I didn't have an appetite at all. I was struggling to regain my appetite. I slept till the next morning. I got up, and I walked downstairs, still hadn't ate anything. Didn't eat anything at lunch. You know, drank some orange juice, tried to get some juice and water in me and stuff like that. And for days, every time I would try to, weeks, every time I would, I would be starving and I would take two bites and I could not eat. I would be like stuffed and everybody would be like, come on, Sharon, just another bite, just another bite. Just encouraging me to try to get nourishment into my body. That's how good these ladies were there. They all just gathered around me and took care of me. The staff would come up and check and make sure I was okay. They would send um, other ladies up to make sure I was okay. I mean, these ladies just rallied around and really took care of me. So as I started getting better and counseling, and this was one of the best decisions I ever made, I mean, to go into this place, it helped me more than anything has ever helped me in my entire life. I started back to church just as I promised God I would have made a bow to God in that hospital room. God, I will walk with you every single day. I will walk through any door that you open. I don't care what it is. I will walk through it, and I will walk by faith. I'm only going to walk by faith, God. And I have kept that bow, and I will continue always to keep that bow. No turning back this time. Started to church. Found a wonderful church. A non-denominational spirit build. Met some wonderful friends there. My mentor, mentor Jenny Gailey, is one of them. Um, met some wonderful, wonderful people there that, that I'm still friends with to this day. And I'm, I'm Sunday morning, I'm there. I mean, and that's the one, it, it's kind of a, just a Sunday morning service. Occasionally there'll be something special, but not really Wednesday night or Sunday nights. Um, but I'm there. When the doors are open, I'm there. Um, and, and I really started getting back to my walk with God. And I felt the Holy Spirit just enveloping me. And, I, and my attitude started changing. And, and the words that I used started changing. And love started exuding. And my life just started becoming filled with the Spirit and changing and changing and changing so quick. It was amazing. Um, and one day, I was at church received a prophecy that I was going to have a huge ministry um, and that that was God's calling in my life was to get back into ministry. Well, I thought I was going to hit the floor. I didn't know what to think about that. Um, and it wasn't long after that that I heard God saying, 
uh, sharing, I want you to begin a ministry on Facebook. And I'm like, God, on Facebook? Really? I don't think that's the place to do it, God. And I heard God say again, I want you to do a ministry on Facebook. And I said, God, mm, I, I just don't think we need to do, you know, somewhere else, God. I'll do ministry somewhere else, but not on Facebook. Third time, I heard God say, I want you to start a ministry on Facebook. Well, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, the Trinity, the third time, that's it, done, done deal, have to do it. So, I began putting together what is now known as Fruits of the Spirit Ministry. And this was in 2015, August of 2015. Started out from one member, went overnight to 250. Um, from 250, we're up to 3,176 in 2018, and it's not August yet, guys. It's not even three years old. God is raising up an army in Fruits of the Spirit Ministry. That's what he's doing. He has handpicked the people to go in here, one by one by one by one. I always feel a strong calling when to add someone, and we have some wonderful amazing, gifted, Holy Spirit walking people in Fruits of the Spirit ministry with some of the best admins I believe anywhere. And this ministry is so near and dear to my heart. Um, it just, I'm, it is just so dear to me. I love each and every person in there. I want to help each and every person in there. Um, I do counseling through messenger if needed, one-on-one. -on -one. I do video counseling, one-on-one, -on -one. whatever is needed. Wherever you ever need me, whether it's depression, um, marriage counseling, whatever. I am only just one message away forever. I walk every day by faith. If God opens a door, I'm going to walk through that door. Um, I was joking. And God changes seasons up on me, guys. Oh, my goodness. God has put me through it. I'll be rocking along, and I'll think this is the life I'm going to have. Season changed. Another door open. I'm going to make a swap, and it might be something I don't want to do. But I walk through that door just like I promised God I would walk through it. And I suffer, and I hurt, and I have pain. Physically and mentally, both. But I keep walking, and I keep walking by faith and not by sight. And every door God opens, I'm walking through that door. I don't care what type of door it is. I don't care how hard it is. I don't care if I have to battle my way through it. I'm going through that door just like I promised God that I would. And, and I've had some pretty tough doors to go through, I'll tell you. Got some amazing testimonies that I'll tell y'all one by one later on. Got more than just one. I've got some amazing testimonies of what God has done. But I keep walking through those doors. I tell my mentor not too long ago when she was encouraging me through just a month ago. I had a terribly difficult season. Oh, heartbroken, terribly difficult season. And I'm on the phone with her constantly. And she's um, my dear sweet Jenny. And she's encouraging me, and she's keeping me on the straight and narrow, and she's lifting me up, and she's just doing everything she can do to help me. And I, and I jokingly told her one day, I said, Jenny, 
I have got to quit praying for God to open doors for me to walk through. I said, I have just got, I, I'm not, I'm not praying for another door to be open. Jenny, I'm not. And she just kind of laughed. Because that's been a joke for a long time with everybody at the safe house. Um, things would happen. Things would change. And uh, somebody would say, have you been praying for doors to open again? <laughs> and, and I would. I would pray God open, any, open a door for me. And until you open that door, I'm going to praise you in the hallway. I'm in the hallway right now. Open this door. Let me walk through it. And, and God does. He opens tons of doors. So, and sometimes they're they're hard to walk through. Sometimes you get weary walking through those doors. But just keep going. Just keep going. Walk by faith and not by sight. Um, keep your eyes on Jesus. No matter how hard, how difficult, how turbulent the season during the storms is when you praise him the loudest. You, when you're in a terrible storm, cut your praising music worship on. That's when I put my headphones on. I get my praising worship music going. I get my spirit in an uproar. And I get to praising God. Because I'm going to get through that storm. God's going to take my hand and he's going to lead me through it. The last um, month in January, it, it was such a... A difficult door that I went through. Such a difficult season beginning. I literally felt God carrying me. Literally felt Jesus wrap his arms around me. And, and just carrying me through that door. Praise God. We've got a loving, caring Father. Our Abba Father. And he loves us. And he will love on us. And... Once I got through this terribly difficult season, my Abba Father has done some amazing things in my life. And I'll tell you about those coming up. But I just wanted to share with y'all, from addiction to abuse to ministry, and how God formed fruits. And I thought maybe y'all should hear that. And as time goes on, I'll be doing some more of these podcasts. Until that time, keep walking by faith. And I love you all. God bless you all.